chapter 1, I will be reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Hebrews 1, 4 through 14. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Father, as these frail Creatures, sinners that we are, who by your grace have had our eyes open to see Jesus. We're in need of the work of your Spirit so that not one word of this text drops to the ground without it affecting our worship. And so I ask that you glorify your Son, and I ask it with great confidence, for I know it is your eternal joy to do so. So do it in our midst this morning in the time that remains. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The most crucial question that any of us in this room or on this planet needs to answer is the question Jesus posed. 
posed in Matthew 16. My disciples, who do you say that I am? If we have an incorrect understanding of who Jesus actually is, then we will not bow before him appropriately in worship and we will not trust him truly as our Savior and our Lord. Ultimately, every one of our eternal destinies rides on correctly understanding who Jesus is. And in light of that, it's not surprising that over the centuries, Satan has schemes to infect even the visible church world, to attack the person of Jesus and who he is. Sometimes that attack is to try to get people to deny the humanity of Jesus, which was happening in the early church, in the first century, and the Apostle John himself had to deal with it in his first epistle. And the other scheme of Satan is, is to get people to deny that Jesus is God to deny His divine nature, to deny His deity. Like Jehovah Witnesses, for example, they say Jesus is a God, indefinite article, not the God. In other words, not the God of the Old Testament that, that visited Moses and said, I am, and my name is the four letters, uh, Yahweh, or through German to English, Jehovah. Not that God, but instead Jesus was the archangel Michael. And, and through Michael the archangel, who is Jesus, therefore he then created all the other stuff. No. And so here, another scheme Satan uses is to somehow cause the unseen spiritual world to dominate Christians' minds in, in, in an inordinate and a wrong way. And even positively with God's messengers or angels, which seems to be what's happening with the recipients of this letter. And that explains why the author spends so much time here trying to set that straight when they are pitting angelic creatures up against Jesus. So much so that starting with verse 4, all the way through the end of the chapter into chapter 2, he's dealing with the subject of angels. But what he's really doing, he's dealing with the subject of Jesus' superiority to angels. 
And he does that with seven different Old Testament quotes on how what God has revealed about Christ. And if you ask the question, well, what are angels? Well, his short answer here is in verse 14, the last verse of the chapter. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The answer is yes. So, my plan is to, to deal with that next week. And it is what's going to really lead me into, okay, there's that verse, it's very clear, it's not that difficult, but it's going to lead me into just treating that topic biblically from Genesis to Revelation. What are angels? That's where we'll go next week. But this morning, I want to cover this whole passage to see it, to see what the author is doing, to allow his main point with his arguments here to grab a hold of us, to see the beauty and why we sang what we sang so far this morning. So the goal of, the, of this author now here in chapter one is that we would be bowled over, that we would be overwhelmed, we would be stunned at the person of who Jesus, born of Mary, suffered and died and wrote who He really is so that we would worship Him. So let's go to the text. We've spent numbers of weeks in verses 1 to 3. So remember the context where we left off in verse 3, Jesus resurrected, ascended, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After He made purification of sins, after His resurrection, there He is. And now that brings us into verse 4. And so verse 4 now adds, and here's the flow. Because of Jesus' installment is King, inauguration is King, enthronement as King he says in verse 4, therefore what? Having become as much superior to angels. As the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the main point of verse 4 and really of the entire section in the first chapter is this. Christ is better. He is infinitely superior to the angels. So how is he better and how much better is he is what the entirety of the rest of the chapter is about. That's the one main point. Verse 4 tells us in what way Christ is superior to angels. Look at it, it's right there. How is he superior to angels according to this author? Answer, as the name. That's his answer. As the name 
he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's, that's how and why and what he means by he is far superior. But, okay, what does that mean? Here, in the context, what is the name that Christ, Jesus, inherited that shows that He is much greater than angels? So let's start with the flow of the context, what He's been saying. When, when Christ died and He made purification of sins and was resurrected and then ascended, He was seated. He was enthroned as king at God's right hand. Okay, that's what he said. Now, look, when a king in the Old Testament takes the seat and the crown is put on the head and now they're reigning as king, what that is is an official declaration that now this person is formally taking up the title, is coming into his inheritance as a king that he's always had since his birth. He was in line for the throne. That's the imagery. And this is why in verse 5, in response to what has happened in human history, in response to his incarnation, Coming a man, his suffering, his dying, and his ascending. Verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, On that inauguration day, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay. These are two quotes from the Old Testament. The first is Psalm 2, verse 7, and the second is 2 Samuel 7, 14. But the point of this verse is to tell us what the name is that's superior to angels? And the answer is, the name is Son. Okay, see, look, see it in the text. Verse 4 says that Christ has inherited a more excellent name than angels. Then verse 5 says, for, F-O-R, for, meaning, in other words, here's my argument for that. For, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. I'm a father to you. You're a son to me. And the answer is, of course, to no angel. Only to Jesus. Does he say that? So the more excellent name is Son of God. Okay, I hope you see that. Now, let's go back again for a moment to the beginning of verse 4, to that very 
on the surface, strange phrase. Having become. Having become more superior to angels. How? Because of the name Son. Okay. In other words, it could seem to imply He was not the Son before His incarnation, His life, His death, His resurrection, His enthronement. And once He does that, then, then He becomes and then He inherits the name Son. So on the surface, it seems that Jesus is not the Son before He inherited the name, my Son. Okay, so first, context, context, context. The, the writer has already made it crystal clear in verses 1 to 3, God spoke to us by His Son, and as He unfolds the deity of Christ in 1 to 3, he, he, it's clearly Jesus is eternally the Son, meaning without ever beginning. He is the one through whom all things are created that are created. He is the one who is upholding the universe into existence. So, this divine essence and nature and exact reduplication that he tells us about makes it clear. No, no, no. He is without beginning, always the eternal Son of the Father. So, in the writer's view, Jesus is the Son and He becomes the Son. Now, what does that mean? That means there are profound truths to redemptive history about Christ. There's a tension between Jesus' divine nature, his, his eternal sonship up against the Father, and the historical bestowing of the name on the humanity of Jesus in His enthronement. Just let it... Now, I'm going to read, if you want, you can flip to Romans 1 for a second. This is, this is what Paul grasps. And listen to how he says this in Romans 1, starting with verse 3. Concerning the gospel, concern, the gospel what? Concerning His, God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and, now watch this, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was finally enthroned or declared. Wait, how? Death, 
resurrected by that, declared to be the Son of God. It's concerning His Son. He first has always been the Son of God. But because of His incarnation, His life, His substitutionary death, His resurrection, He was declared Son of God. He inherited His right in the installment. And He's declared Son of God now on a new basis and in a new way. He is the God-man. He's the Son of God not only because of His eternal right in His nature, in the Holy Trinity, but also by the right of His victory over sin and over death. So the eternal Son, Jesus, is now and forever will be also the Son of God in power by means of His substitutionary sacrifice and resurrection from the dead in true humanity. And so Jesus, He has in that sense, become greater than angels, inheriting the name Son of God. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And that's what verses 5 all the way through verse 14 now, go on to argue for what it's about. The point of verse 5 is to say, God never said such a thing to an angel. You are my son. No angel sits at God's right hand. Only Jesus. And then... Verse 6, it makes the superiority of Jesus to all of the angels crystal clear by showing that angels, and we sang it this morning, worship Jesus. Verse 6, and again, when He, God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, quote, let all God's angels worship him. So Jesus, as the Son, is superior to angels. How is that shown? Angels, like they do Yahweh, worship Jesus. Just real quickly, the author throws in this word, firstborn. When brings the firstborn. What's going on? He's Bible-saturated is what's going on. I mean, he draws that term out of Psalm 89, verse 27. And if you read, read the whole Psalm 89, the whole thing is about David's son, which is to come. It's all about the Messiah who is to come. And in verse 27, we read this of Psalm 89. I will make him 
the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And firstborn, of course, it, in the context, it denotes supremacy. It refers to a position. Not like, what's your birth order? It's, it's the right of the firstborn, like Esau had it because he came out first. He had the right of what? All the inheritance. It was the way it was. But he took that right and he sold it to his brother. And now Jacob had the right of firstborn. And so that's, that's another term for Christ, the firstborn. He has the right of inheritance, which the author already let us know in verses 1 to 3. And so, having said that, don't miss the very simple main point of verse 6. Angels, they worship Jesus. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols. You shall bow down and not worship any other so-called god God's created angelic hosts worship Jesus. And that worshiping of Jesus is a huge issue in this world. There are three major monotheistic one God worshiping religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And this issue right here is what separates Christianity from the others, including the false religious cult of Jehovah's Witnesses. All of these religions say Jesus is not to be worshipped, which is very understandable. It's human being in history, so it's fully understandable. Unless that Son of God is God, which the author now goes on to argue clearly in verses 7 to 9. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, and he quotes Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the author says, well, angels, they are servants. But then what the writer sees here in Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7, is the stunning fact that this human king is called Elohim, God. 
verse 8. Your throne, and now comes here in the Greek, the vocative case, which means we set it apart with a comma, right? Direct address when you're speaking to someone in writing, you set it apart. Your throne, addressing who? Oh God. And then in verse 9, God is called His God. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. So, in the Old Testament, it's clear that we have a king whose God is God and who is himself. Psalm 45 is stunning. And the author's point is, the man, Christ Jesus, as God, will reign forever and ever. His his earthly rule was marked by his love for righteousness and his hatred for lawlessness. And those those qualities would marked him off then and since the resurrection and his enthronement, and he will return. The, the word forever and ever and ever means those things will mark his future coming kingdom. And therefore, the reason Christ is worshipped by the angels in verse 6 is not because He is the Son of God in a way that angels could be called sons of God. And in the way that we Christians are called sons of God throughout the New Testament. No. Totally different meaning. He's the Son of God in the sense that He is God the Son. It's a whole different meaning. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Becoming a Christian, true conversion to Christ, the miracle of new birth by the Spirit, it involves seeing this. It's true. It's grasping Jesus in truth of His divine glory manifested to us in human nature for us and for our salvation. It's what it is. It's what Paul means when he talks about conversion. And he says, what happened to you is the truth was shined in your heart to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Christian involves a 
grasping of that truth. The truth that he is a true human being. Who? God the Son incarnate. And thus, he is to be worshipped. Adored and loved is the treasure of God himself to us. So when we ask the question to each other as Christians, do you love God? It means, do you love the Father? And no less does it mean this, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus is God now, which is why, let's read on in the text, verse 10. Why the author now goes and he quotes from Psalm 102, which that psalm about God, the creator, he says now, stunningly, this refers to Jesus. Okay, just if you I'm going to turn back to Psalm 102 for a second. Turn, turn there. I want you to just get the flow of, of what's going on here. The Psalm 102 begins in verse 1 this way. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Let my cry come to you. So he's praying to Yahweh, to the I am. Moses, tell them, I am sent me. And now jump down to verse 12. He's still praying. But you, O Yahweh, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Down to verse 24, still praying. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. And now, the next three verses are what the Hebrew writer grabs hold of and quotes here now in chapter 1 of Hebrews, starting with verse 10. So I'm back to Hebrews. Now he quotes this, so you get the flavor. And the whole point is what? It's led with these words. Of the Son, he says. Says what? You, Lord. Laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So the writer is simply saying here, and confirming what he already said back in verse 2, that everything was created through Jesus. So he's saying here, as you look at Yahweh as Elohim, the creator in the text, that's God creating, but it is no less His Son. Manifested in human flesh, the one we know is Jesus. Creating, because He is. God, the Son, the creator of the universe. He is to be worshipped. 
And so the question, who do you say that I am? Peter? And then God the Holy Spirit came upon him and rose up within him and he answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Do we have an appropriate sense of awe, of wonder, of love, of trust, of joy, of worship of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The whole point of Hebrews 1 is to make us passionately devoted to the glory of Jesus Christ as King, as an absolute sovereign control of the universe, as the Creator, as the Redeemer, the one who made purification for our sins. And then the writer, he gives one last contrast in verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So he returns to where he began in verse 3. Jesus is exalted and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in verse 8, your throne, O God, your throne that he's sitting on, is David's son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And now he comes back here in verse 13 to that triumphant place with the words, sit at my right hand until your enemies are a footstool for your feet. And that's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, which happens to be the most quoted Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament 14 times. I just want to turn to one other for a moment. Matthew 22. Jesus quoted it. Starting with verse 41 in Matthew 22, we read, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then 
that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus continued, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Then he probably just walked away. Because what David prophesied about a thousand years before Jesus, that king, came on the scene, that's the Lord of glory. This promised king is different. And so the writer to the Hebrews now, he says, do you see what is said to Jesus in Psalm 110? Sit at my, God speaking, my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God never said that to angels. That's his point. Stop with the stupid theologies going around. But what he did and what he does say about angels is just simply this. They are ministering spirits. Servants. They're there to serve you, Christian. To serve those who? Those persons who are the ones to inherit salvation. And so the author's contrast is clear. Jesus is sitting as king. The angels are servants. There is only one great King, and there are many, 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 many of these angelic servants. Angels serve Christians, the ones inheriting salvation. Christ is king over the church, and thus the angels are his servants to serve on behalf of Christ to the church. And so his point. Jesus Christ is far, far above all angelic beings. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the Son. We live in a day, in an age where it's okay to talk about Jesus as long as you talk about Him as a great teacher a good man, a prophet even, a moralizer, a founder of a religion. And millions, that's all they go to. They kind of in the back of their mind think about Jesus like that. But they don't bow down and worship Him. Worship Him, the Creator the Sovereign, the Lord, as God Himself sustains all things by the word of His power. And that approach to life is living a lie. And as it communicates 
to whomever, whether it's floating through churches or just in the culture, that lie helps blind people to their eternal condemnation where they're headed unless they see. If Jesus Christ is not God in human nature, then His death could not atone for sins. And we should not worship Him. But if what Hebrews 1 says is true, that our eternal destinies in this room rest on our not being indifferent to it, but a response to what you have heard, a response to Him who is in the room right now, very present. And thus it is our joy. It's our joy to worship Him. And that's why we sing these words. As symphonies of angels praise now strain to sound His glory. Come, worship, fall before His grace, the King in all His beauty. Now see the King who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters. The sacrifice for ruined man, the substitute for sinners. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last and bows his head, the king in all his beauty. Bring praise and honor to his courts. Bring wisdom, power, blessing. For endless ages we will adore the king in all His beauty. Let us stand and sing it.